I'm taking just a brief moment to tell you about Anchor, which is the platform that I am using to record my podcast. Let me explain. First of all, it's free. And who doesn't want free? There are also certain tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your iPhone or computer. And Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more platforms. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So please just download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started and have fun doing it. Hi everyone, this is Christy from Life Struggles. I'm going to give you just a little bit of background on my interview today with Kim Green. Oh my goodness, sit back, listen, don't have a drink or smoke some pot, and enjoy, maybe even shed a few tears on Kim's story. A little bit of background is that Kim was three years old on a boat with her dad when she had her first beer given to her by her dad. And she liked the taste. Can you imagine that? And then her first drunk, she was 11 years old. By the time she was 15, she was actively drinking, smoking pot and cocaine and meth and all the things. Listen carefully and learn about an addictive personality and her amazing recovery story. Here's Kim. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Good. I try to get my earbuds to work on here, but they don't for some reason. Oh, well, that's okay. Let's just go yeah. ahead and get started. So um, I think we will just go ahead with you starting your story. I did okay. do an introduction. So hello, everybody. This is Kim. And Kim has quite a story to tell us. Um, some of you might even get teary eyed, but there's a really good ending. Okay, Kim, take it from here. <laughs> Thanks so much, Christy. Hi, my name is Kim. Um, I currently live in Portland, Oregon. Um, and as of today, I have a little over seven and a half years clean from any drugs or any alcohol. Now, about eight years ago, I never could have said that. So, you know, my story starts... Um, it just, just as any other person would really, um, I was born into a family, you know, middle-class working family. Um, my parents are still married to this day. I have two older brothers and I'm the youngest of three kids. 
I am also a type one diabetic. So that means that um, I am insulin dependent. Um, so I, I really do think that that has a lot to do with uh, some of some of my addiction and alcohol issues. Um, so, you know, I, I was I was born and and I I say this that I I came out and I just feel like I was born with that alcoholism gene in me. And the reason why I say that is because you know, I would get an idea in my head and I, it was like an obsession. And here's, for example, um, I always wanted a hamster and I would ask my mom over and over and over and over for a hamster, like every single day. And, you know, I would drive her nuts. And it's like, it was that obsession that I couldn't do anything. My life would be better if I had a hamster. Right. So I would always drive my nut, my mom nuts over these things that I wanted and I mean, it, it even went as far as um, into my relationships. You know, when I was a little girl, I could only have one friend at a time. And we were like best, best of friends. Um, and if that friend ever wanted to have other friends, it broke my heart. So I didn't, what, I, <laughs> yeah, I didn't quite like, you know, it, it just something was a little bit off. Now, um, you know, my two older brothers were much older, one's seven years older and one's 10 years older. So I kind of was like an only child sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, growing up was growing up was good. I can't really say that, you know, I'm a I'm a victim of abuse or anything like that. But I started. I think, yeah, we talked about this. Um, the first time I ever had a drink. Well, that I can remember. I do remember being on a houseboat with my parents, we always went on a houseboat in California during our summer times. And I remember having chips, eating chips and drinking beer with my dad. So I would take sips of beer and something about like the saltiness of the chips and washing it down with beer and the bubbles. It was just, it was so good, you know, and I wasn't, you know, a three-year-old chugging beer or anything, but I can just remember the taste of it. It was, it was good. Um, so what we want to do is really quickly clarify what Kim's, I believe, trying to explain is that she just was born with an addiction, period. Correct. Um, and to clarify that addiction is addiction, it can be of anything. It can be of alcohol it can be of drugs it can be an obsession with cleaning it can be o ocd with anything all of all of that so this is what we're talking about today so kim does have a lot of different stuff to add to this okay take it back <laughs> yeah uh so the first time I can ever remember physically being drunk, um, it was a Christmas party that my parents had and my brothers were there. And mind you, they were much older. And I saw a blue bottle and it was a blue bottle with some sort of liquor in it, but it had like blue crystals. And I just thought it was magical. You know, it had <laughs> writing on it. I was just, it, it looked so cool to me. So you know, my brother poured, I remember it being in a scotch glass. My brother poured it and he thought I would just take a sip. Well, I drank the whole entire thing. Now, mind oh my you, gosh. <laughs> yeah, it was probably more than half of a scotch glass. So I, 
I don't really remember, you know, um, obviously my parents were doing their thing, you know, entertaining guests. And I remember walking down the stairs, I had one hand on a railing and then one hand on a wall. And I just remember feeling so dizzy and woozy. And then I went to bed. I probably slept great. <laughs> you know, but oh that's, that's what I remember. But do you remember how you felt? Um, I, I don't, I just remember the wooziness and the dizzy and just kind of like, whoa, whoa. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't, I don't even know if I put two and two together that that's what was happening. And that's what I was feeling. Like I drank this alcohol and now here I am drunk. <laughs> so so was- how much, how much do you think you weighed then? Oh gosh. I mean, I was probably 12, 12 or 13. So maybe 70 80 pounds maybe okay and you had how much um just a shot no it was in a scotch glass so I yeah I I probably drank half of it if not all of it you know wow a lot there was a lot I don't remember throwing up or anything like that but that's what Um, I do remember um, but so if you don't remember and nobody said anything, you probably didn't. Right. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, this this so, is kind of interesting that at, at that much at that age and uh, unless you were already building a tolerance. No, I mean, it, I wasn't drinking like all the time at that point, but Um, You know, as I got older and middle school and the beginning stages of high school, I do remember um, hanging out with this group of girls that we were like, okay, you know, let's sneak some alcohol from our parents' cabinets. And I remember getting an empty water bottle and pouring, God, I don't even know if I mixed them at that point, but pouring um, liquor into it and then marking the bottle with a crayon. And that's where I knew to fill it up with water. So, you know, whether it was tequila or whatever it was, I would put water into it to make sure that the levels were the same. That's just like so amazing to me because I would think somebody would like notice that crayon mark or or when they tasted I, the alcohol that it would be like not as strong as it should be. Or, right. You I, would I think guess so. And they, yeah. <laughs> and they... Okay, so we pause for a brief time yeah. and Kim is back. So let's continue. Okay, now what part did I leave off? Because I don't know where it cut out at. That um, they, whatever, they didn't, ex- they didn't notice the line that you drew or that it was mixed with water or, that, or anything. Okay, yeah. So, um, and... Being in high school, you know, we experimented with marijuana and enter in the harder drugs, which comes, um, you know, the ecstasy, the MDMA. There was some mushrooms and some LSD. And when I tried cocaine for the first time, it was like light bulbs went off in my brain and in my body. Now, I really think that has to do a lot with me being a type one diabetic and, um, my autoimmune issues because I always was dealing with high blood sugars and low blood sugars and it really took a toll on my body and on my energy level. So when I tried an upper, it was like 
yes, this is how life is supposed to be. This is how I'm supposed to feel. Um, and, you know, I was sneaking out of my parents' house a lot. I was doing drugs. Um, and they really, I, I think they knew at that time that I was smoking pot, but that wasn't really, you know, it was like, okay, it's a teenage thing. It's a phase. Um, why do you and- think they knew? I mean, do I think no? Why do you think that they knew? Did you have conversations, or was it something they just set aside, or thinking that Um, you know some a phase you were going through and you'd get through? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what most parents think with their kids when they do something dramatically different, such as like, you know, they're they're playing sports one day and then another day they are dressed in all black and wearing eyeliner. You know, they're like, okay, mm-hmm. this is just a phase. But um, I do remember, you know, my parents finding the marijuana sometimes. I mean, obviously it's a stinky substance so they could smell it. And that's when the lying really came into place. Um, you know, as, as you smoke pot, your eyes get red, kind of droopy. So we carried around visine in our purses um you know we'd wash our hands so they didn't stink and probably came out smelling like a you know a whore from a french brothel because we'd spray so much perfume on us to try and mask the smell but um it was all to try and cover up what was going on you know didn't want anyone to know or think anything different while i was having an amazing party in my head right and so if there's any parents out there listening to this that have children some of the signs you want to look for um yeah because we're we're ignorant to that you know we don't think well our child's not going to do that you know like you explained you you came from a normal happy family if their quote is something known as normal now but a middle class family uh they're happily married still married yep so there wasn't any issues like that nobody was abusive to you correct nope so we're actually correlating this with your diabetes is that true um i think that is definitely a part in it you know um, and how that goes into even harder drugs um so yeah, there was there was a lot. There's so many pieces of the puzzle that looking back on it now, when I look back at my life, I'm like, oh yeah, that is total alcoholic or addictive behavior. Okay, and the other thing, um, we I just wanted you to briefly let parents know, um, like like how you how you got away with not going to school and um, or skipping school, I should say. To hang mm. out with your friends. Yeah. So um, at that time, I don't really think that they had phone calls that they made. Um, now, this was in like the late 80s, early 2000s. Um, so I might have answered the phone before my parents did, you know, because they were at work. But I would write my own uh, letters, you know, I'd write it in my mom's hand signature saying, Oh, Kim had an appointment on this day. Please excuse her. Things like that. So, and yeah. they just never questioned it. Uh, Apparently. the school, the school <laughs> yeah. or yeah. both. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, 
there wasn't a lot of questioning going on that that I remember, you know, um, obviously looking back now, it's like, there's, there's trauma in the story involved, but it's funny with our brains because we remember things in, 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 um, in glimpses, you know, I don't remember all of my growing up in my childhood and things like that, because it might, it might've been things that I went through at that time, you know, was there a sexual abuse later on in my life? Absolutely. You know, but our brain has one primary purpose and that is to keep us safe. Right. So, so when it's a memory or things like that, or, oh, this is an unsafe place, it kind of shuts down. So, you know, still to this day, I'm learning more and more about myself, but yeah. Um, okay. As far as, you know, the lies, there was a lot of lies, always lying. Um, and I barely graduated high school. Um, my parents at the very end, my senior year, um, they did know that I was barely going to graduate. And that's when they knew they were like, okay, something's going on. And I was skipping school, definitely skipping school. Um, and what excuses I told them, I'm not sure, but. <laughs> well, yeah. and I guess not to, uh, this is not a judgment being put on it, but I from what I've done in research and stuff with the amount of drugs and the amount of years with the drugs and the alcohol and all that, that's going to cloud your memory too. Besides the fact that it was years ago. So, Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the effect that it has on the brain, especially, you know, the, the constant drinking. And if you get into um, harder drugs, it changes the brain, you know, they're, you do certain drugs and it causes holes and dark spots. When you look at it through an MRI or a CAT scan or anything like that, it definitely changes the brain as you know. (laughs) Yep. Okay. So you got caught. Mom and dad finally figured out that you, something was going on. And so what happened then? Um, I don't, I don't really, I don't think I was punished or anything, but it was like, Hey, if you don't go to school, you're not going to go to college. And I didn't, I didn't care. I didn't want to go to college. I had no dreams or aspirations of what I wanted to do when I grew up. Like, honestly, honest to goodness, I, I was like, Hey, I'm, I'm going to be an alcoholic. That's what I'm going to be. Not like the type that is brown bagging it under a bridge or anything, but I just, I loved to party. I loved the way it made me feel. I loved the nightlife. And that's what brought me into, you know, the next segment of my life per se. Okay. So let's go on to that. So yeah, where, first of all, did you work in high school? Um, I had little odds and end jobs. You know, I remember working at a, at a little card store, like a Hallmark store almost. I remember be, that. And well, because it a, takes money to get this stuff. It does. So, so where does. were you getting your money? Um, we started selling marijuana and uh, we get it from much older guys and you know, taking out our share and selling the rest, uh, increasing in price or whatever it was. Wow. Um, and there was never any um, arrests or you never got caught and no. you just got away with no. it. Okay. Yeah. 
there was there was no arrest definitely so what um, was the because as as we know today you've been sober for what mm-hmm. we say oh, seven seven years? and a half years yeah yeah so what started that how how did that come about or is there some stuff in between that's important for us to know oh there's a whole bunch of stuff in between okay. So, okay, well, tell us some stuff in between. Yeah. Um, so I, as I mentioned, living in Reno in a 24-hour town, um, I was introduced to, I met an exotic dancer. I started going to a um, community college because I was like, okay, I have to do that. Um, and this girl, you know, she had a nice car, nice clothes, nice bags. And I was like, what does she do? And she told me, she said, she said, I am a stripper, an exotic dancer, if you will. And I was like, okay, you know, and and meanwhile, like I loved the club scene. Um, again, I had a fake ID, so I was going in there all the time. I started working there by checking in coats and so I, I loved it. I loved the lights. I loved the music being out at night. It was just so exciting. So I was about 18 when I started my dancing ex- okay. escapade. Wow. And so did mom and dad know about that? I mean, I really, you probably weren't even living at home, were you? No, I mean, they, they did find out. I know that, but they didn't know for a while. But were you not living at home? Um, I don't think I was at that point because I was out all the time, you know, staying with friends or boyfriends. So, um, yeah, I started, I started dancing and it was always, you know, people were buying girls drinks and incomes, the more drugs and things like that. And, um, I had a, I had a good friend at the time and we used to party. And one time I called her and I was like, Hey, where are you? And she never answered. And then the next day she called and she was like, Hey, uh, I was out last night, you know, I was doing something and I was like, what were you doing? And she's like, well, I was doing meth. And at that point, like I had no idea what it was, but I wanted to know, I mean, I, there wasn't a drug or anything like that, that I was like, I'm not going to do that, you know, because you were never afraid of trying anything. No. No, absolutely not. It was like exciting, you know, to try something. So the first time I tried crystal meth, it was, um, that was it. I was hooked from the very first moment. So Um, how does that make you feel? How does it make, oh, the drug itself? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. It's like cocaine times a thousand. Um, it's an upper, it, um, it fires off the dopamine and the serotonin in our brains and it felt, it felt good. Um, you know, I could get things done. I felt like I was quicker, faster, but really it was just the speed. Um, and it, it was, yeah. But did you, okay. So it probably helped you with your self-esteem if you, I don't, I don't know what your self-esteem was, but that's what I've understood about it. Um, if there was sadness in your life, it took that away. Is what it, yeah. this is. This is all stuff I've heard from other people, like what they, what it's done for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I want to know is, did you, did you have the feeling of, I want more, I need more, or did you oh, use it yeah. as a crutch 
or when you weren't feeling on top of the world? Oh, no. I wanted it all day, every day. Um, The first time that I tried it, I stayed up for 13 days straight. So that was 13 days, no sleeping. Um, You know, I had to drink liquid, obviously, to stay alive. So there was probably, you know, drinking water and alcohol um, and smoking marijuana in between and lots of cigarettes. (laughs) Wow. um, Lots of damage to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And, and here you are. So, okay, continue. Um, and, and so being up for 13 days, um, the hallucinations kick in, you know, you have audio hallucinations, visual hallucinations, the paranoia is, it's scary. It's I was going to say, isn't that part scary? It is. It was very scary. Okay. Um, you know, and, and the first time, obviously the first bender that I went on, it was like, okay. Um, so around day third, you know, towards the end, um, I towards the was end like, of what? towards the end of my 13 days being up straight. Okay. Um, that is where I was like, Oh, Hey, I'm a diabetic. I'm gonna, you know, check my blood sugar, do that kind of stuff. So I gave myself some insulin thinking that I needed it. Well, mind oh, you, my checking, my brain was very, uh, well, I checked my blood sugar, you know, and I hadn't done anything. I hadn't been eating nothing. So the point of insulin is to, when we put, uh, food in our body, our blood sugars naturally rise Well, our pancreas produces insulin and that brings down our blood sugars. Well, since my pancreas doesn't work, I give myself insulin. So not, no, you know, Again, there was, was definitely drug-induced uh, craziness, and I gave myself insulin, and it brought my blood sugars down so low that I passed out. Um, so I remember someone pouring like ice-cold water on my head, and I was on the ground, and I was like, <gasps> you know, and that's when I, I woke up, and they drove me to the hospital, and they left me there. So mind you, everyone that I was with at that time was, was doing drugs and probably pretty paranoid. So So um, they didn't want anybody to know. Oh no, they didn't want anybody to know anything. So I I go to the hospital and I remember them cutting off my clothes. Like I had new clothes. (coughs) They cut them off? They did. They cut them off because they couldn't get them off of me. Like I was incoherent. So they cut them. Hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. But you remember that. I do. Or do you I just do. remember you woke up and they were cut off? No, I do remember them cutting them, cutting them, um, you know, to mm-hmm. get to do check my heart and to put in IVs and things like that. They got to have clear. But yet you without. couldn't, even though you knew what they were doing, your body couldn't respond to help them. Right. Okay. I mean, I was I was just so out of it. So. Okay. Um, they got my blood sugar back in range and I was coming out of it while I called my friends and my quote unquote friends, right. Who just dropped me off at the hospital to leave (laughs) me there. Um, and they came back and got me and I was smoking again. Like on the way home, I just, I lit up again and I was getting loaded. So, um, smoking, smoking meth again. Like I just, I went to the hospital. Nope. They had it. Oh, so you hooked so, up with them immediately and got some more. I, d- I did. Yeah. Okay. I did. 
Okay. Now, you know, I was getting money obviously through dancing and that's how the money was coming in at this time. So, okay. you know, um, fast forward and things like that, it just, it got worse and worse. Obviously my parents knew and I would go to their house to try and clean up and sober up. And they're like, yeah, this isn't working out. We're not going to have you here doing this. Um, and it was just, it spiraled very, very quickly. Um, I remember around Christmas time, I, you know, family was going to be around. I was living in a motel off of Fourth Street in Reno. Now, Fourth Street is not a good place. Let's just say that. Um, so and probably a lot of drugs and stuff to, or is that what you're talking about? Or just, yeah, like, yeah. like okay. There, okay. It was just, it was nonstop. I mean, I would use and use and keep using until my body, body like physically gave out. And I was like, okay, I'd pass out for like two days, three days. And I would sleep that entire time because my body was just like giving out, you know, it needed sleep. So, um, while I was in that hotel, I was definitely dancing, but with meth use and the paranoia, um, that the, the commercials that you see on TV are true. You know, um, I used to picket my skin a lot. Now I would be covered from head to toe in sores. So no one, no one wants to see a stripper like that. Let's just, <laughs> so, so it was like this, you know, I would be loaded and try to heal my skin and myself. And so I get clean. And as soon as I went back to the strip club, I would start all over again. And it was this vicious cycle of, of just nonstop. So physically, like, were you dropping weight? Oh, I was skinny. Normally I'm five, nine and 170 pounds. So I was, I looked like a skeleton, like a walking skeleton. My skin was literally hanging off my bones. Um, my hair was, my hair was falling out. So, and the strip club didn't care about that. They just let you come back. There was a couple of times and they're like, yeah, you need to go home, you know, and I would try to hide it to my best of my ability by covering it with makeup or things like that. But towards the end, I I knew, I knew that I couldn't do that anymore. Um, You know, where I'd get clean long enough to where my skin was okay. And I would um, make enough money and then go and do it again for another two weeks. So, um, yeah. And, I can't and, imagine all this damage done to your body. So, so how did you end up not doing this anymore? Yeah. So it must have been some where, kind of point you came to. It was. That is where um, I went to rehab. I went to several rehabs, but I went to one in Eugene, Oregon, and. I, I met a guy there doing all the things you're not supposed to do. And um, mm-hmm. I met a guy there and he, yeah, cause you're not supposed to. Oh no. Uh, it, um, what, what I want to say, you're not supposed to form a relationship with anybody that's in treatment, right? No, no, right. definitely not. Okay. Go so, ahead. um, you know, we, we were hanging out and doing all the things and I was in a 90 day program at that time, like intensive treatment. Um, I stayed there for 90 days. And so he was only doing like a 21 day program and he lived in Portland. And so he got out and would come and see me. And then by the time that I finally was 
uh, able to be released and done, um, that is when we started really dating. And both of us were clean. That was great. But he was looking at a uh, some time in prison. So he had the same drug of choice. Um, and he got convicted of a crime. And he did six years in prison. Wow. So, Okay. Um, him and I were together before he was convicted. And um, when he was taken away, that's when I was left in Oregon. And I continued and I did the same thing. I went back to Nevada um, and did the same thing. So in 2011 is when he was released from prison. And I came back up to Oregon to be with him. And I mean, I, I loved him. Like we, from the get go, we, there was like fireworks. It just... He so was did my you person. Have communication with him during those six years? I mean, that's a um, long time. It is a long time. So he would call and I wouldn't answer the phone. He would write letters and I wouldn't read them because it hurt. It def it hurt so bad. I didn't know how to deal with it. So my way of dealing at the time was just pretend like it wasn't there. You know, um, I, I missed him and I just I felt so bad because I was out again getting loaded, getting high. And he was, he was clean. So he was in prison and it's like, you know, that inferiority where I was like, he doesn't need this. And, and I'm, I'm just out there getting high again. So I came back here uh, to Oregon in 2011. And that is when I started trying to get clean. And I knew that I had to, to be with him. So it was about three years off and on where I get high and then I'd stop and then I'd get high. And the last time uh, in 2014, my sobriety date is February 8th, 2014. Um, he came home at that time we lived together. He came home and he found the drugs in the house. And he said, look, I cannot have this in the house. And I, and I'm like, those aren't mine. Da, da, da. And we were the only two that lived in our place together. So of course, obviously they were mine. And he's like, look, I'm not going back to prison because of this, because if he had a parole officer come and check the house and find drugs, he would immediately go back to prison. So right. at that point, um, I remember standing in the kitchen at the time and I just collapsed in his arms and I was like, I'm done. I'm done. You know, I was so tired, felt so sick, um, malnourished, uh, tired of a lot of the, the chaos was inside of my brain, you know, again, with the drugs and the, the hallucinations and the paranoia, it just, it was scary. I, it was scary. Um, so I enrolled myself in outpatient treatment and I started going to school to be a medical assistant. And that is where things really took off. Uh, I did amazing in school. I got straight A's. I started working for the school and then I got a job at a foot and ankle surgeon and I found out I was pregnant. Wow. So that, yeah, that's where my son so I was about a year sober and, um, you know, I had some women in my life tell me that you shouldn't have this baby, you know, you don't have enough time clean and sober and that like fueled a fire in me. I was like, there's no way that I'm not going to have a baby. So, um, to this day, my, I have two children. I have a six year old and I have a, a three year old. They've never seen me or their dad. Hi. And, um, 
things just continue to get better. I mean, it's not all rainbows and sunshine, but I do work a program of recovery. I work with other women and um, I am really an advocate for people getting clean, um, whether it's, you know, alcohol or drugs. Um, and I, I believe that there is such power in recovering loudly because if we don't, then we die silently. So, okay. I'm going to repeat that quote for you guys. So we recover loudly or we die silently. Yeah. I love that. So yeah. where, where would somebody go when they're ready? Because we mm. both know that in order for this to work, you have to be ready. Oh, right. that's such right. a good question. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, so yes, they do have to be ready. I mean, any sort of outpatient treatment or inpatient, I mean, my preference is obviously inpatient because it's safe. It's a safe place. There's no, um, you know, outside influences. There's no drugs or alcohol allowed there. And it's people who really know how to work with addiction issues. Um, and they, they focus in on the, the why we are drinking the way that we are or why we are getting high the way that they are. Like, what is it that we are trying to run from? You know, so it's a mm -hmm. lot of, of self-work. Um, so definitely, definitely inpatient or outpatient. Um, I mean, if that's not something that's available for someone, there's detox centers all over the place. Um, I know here in Oregon, uh, one of them is Hooper Detox. And you go in there at the beginning of the morning, like you wait in line outside and they give you a little mat and a blanket and you go in a room and you sit there and you shake it out. You know, they give you food and their, their job is to get you into a, into a program, like a, a treatment facility or something like that. So it, when you go for help like that, um, from what I understand, you can't just go cold turkey uh, off of some drugs and, and depending on how much alcohol you've been consuming or whatever it is. So do these places like help you medically? Yeah, some of them do definitely. Um, so if, if you've been drinking for, let's say 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you know, and, and your body is so used to that, um, it is definitely advised to medically detox because if, if, a, if a hardcore alcoholic stops drinking, they could die. And it's kind of like counterintuitive, but and couldn't that be that the same with cocaine or meth or if you were doing that like constantly, wouldn't you have to have some type of help? It's, in... it's not that way with like the uppers per se, no. but if you get into opiates, um, you know, or benzodiazepines or, or heroin or things like that, that is where you definitely need like a medical detox um, they wean you off of it slowly income, the suboxone and the methadone. And those are all, um, drugs used to help people get off of, of hard opiates such as heroin. Okay. But as and far as like cocaine and meth and things like that, you, you don't need, you don't need it. But um, it, that also, both of those drugs are ones that like try to pull you in. 
all when you're of them not deal. doing them. So if, if somebody's going to try to do that by themselves, mm-hmm. do you, do you have any suggestions on what would help them to not give in to that feeling of, I need this or. Yeah, that's, that's another good question. Wow. Christy, you came prepared. (laughs) Um, Of course. Yes. You know, it's, it's really tough because when, when drugs are so prevalent in our, in our homes and in our lifestyle, that's what we're used to. So, you know, obviously the people that we are around at that time are all using or getting loaded. So it's really having to change everything about your life. The people you hang out with, the people that you um, talk to, the places you go, the things you do, everything has to change. You know, it's a saying that if you hang out in a barbershop long enough, you're going to get your hair cut. So, (laughs) so mind you, like if you are trying to stop drinking and you go to a bar to play pool for some odd reason, you know, more, most likely you're going to have a drink because everyone else is, and you're in that same environment again. And then I would like to add something just to everyone. Um, not obviously, not everybody is an alcoholic or comes from an addicted, hereditary background. Um, but I, I was, and I just want to say this: I didn't even want to try anything because I was so terrified of the addiction. Mm. I had seen the damage done and stuff. But what I want to say is that I still, like in college, you know, went went to the bars on college night, you know, and stuff. And I just chose not to drink. And I could have just as much fun as everybody else. But what I want to say is I always got pressured, even though... I would just say, you know, I'm good, you know, thanks anyway. When other people are drinking and having fun, they they want you to do that. They want you to drink with them. Absolutely. No matter how much I would say, really, really, I'm fine. And I did have a good time until somebody was so drunk that it just wasn't fun to be around them. Depending, you know, on what kind of drunk they were. Some of them that are just happy drunks, you know, it was fun, Um, you know, but not ones that get angry or belligerent, you know, and all that. And then you just walk away from it. But what I want to say to people is if somebody says no, thank you, let it go. Yep, absolutely. It's you really need to let it go. And I don't know, maybe they don't think about that when they're drinking or something, but I was so pressured. And, and that made me end up not wanting to go out anymore. So please, you guys, if you're out drinking and having a good time and stuff, and you've got a friend that just isn't into that, don't pressure them. Yeah. Okay. So, so um, my message of hope is that anyone, anyone, anywhere can get clean and can get sober. Um, I, uh, you know, I'd done my fair share of things that I believed that I didn't deserve it. Um, but I, I, I got in touch with 
people who had something that I wanted to, you know, I would see women laughing. I would see them happy. Their skin was glowing. They looked, um, their hair was beautiful, you know, and they were, they were smart. And I was like, I want that. And so that's who I surrounded myself with, you know, and a lot of times these women taught me to love myself and they loved me when I didn't know how to love. Um, you know, at the beginning they would give me hugs and I would pull away, you know, because I didn't want to be touched, but they, they loved me and they showed me how to live, how to live life and a function without drugs and alcohol. So, um, it, it can be done. I mean, it takes a lot of work, but it's nothing like it was, you know, having to remember the lies, having to be afraid of people, you know, who did I owe money to? Uh, who was going to come rob me? Who was going to come beat me up? Uh, nothing is like that today. Um, my people now I can truly call friends. They will be here in a heartbeat if I That's needed them. Great. But are these friends that you met during recovery? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I have people that I know, you know, from my past, I mean, if they are, um, you know, out there using and stuff, a lot of it is through social media too. Um, again, I, I stay at home with my, my kids and I work from home. So I, I don't, I don't go in those situations anymore. Um, and, and now I look at it as like, I can be that beacon of hope. You know, I can, I can show people that it can be done because a lot of people from my past know what a junkie that I was. Mm -hmm. So my, my hope is that if you have someone in your life or you are that person, don't give up, don't give up, you know, one day. And it is one day at a time. It, It really is because if we start thinking about, oh, I'll never be able to drink again, you know. I used to be like, well, what if I get married? I'll never be able to drink on my wedding. Let's just say this. If I was going to drink on my wedding, I would be passed out. My legs would be up in there and I'd probably sleep with a <laughs> groomsman. You know, I mean, that's the type of alcoholic that I am. Right. <laughs> so, so, you know, um, my heart really goes out to the children of alcoholics and addicts because they have no choice. You know, they watch the parents suffer and, and they are, stuck in it they don't have a choice so so I get another interesting question since you said that um uh how old are your children six and three okay have you seen in them any type of effect of addiction Mm -hmm. um With my son, I see a lot of um, similarities. You know, Mm -hmm. he is a super intense little kid and um, he gets in people's faces a lot and doesn't quite know that personal space. But also at the same time, if someone says that they don't want to play with him, his Mm -hmm. heart is broken, you know, or, or if he gets iPad time, um, he will like want to buy new lives or whatever it is that kids do on iPads. And Mm -hmm. he just talks about it over and over and over. And so those are the similarities that I'm like, okay, this used to happen to me when I was a kid, you know, but. So do do you dismiss them or have, do you have some kind of plan that you're using to help him? 
Um, we talk about it. We talk about a lot of, um, you know, when we do this, this happens, or when we say this, these are the consequences. Um, it's, it's kind of hard with kids that are so young, but at the same time, me and their dad, um, their dad now has 16 years of sobriety. So he is just, he is an incredible man. And, um, it's just, I am so blessed today to have my family and, but we, our goal is to really share with our children what could happen. You know, our kids have been around, they know they've seen us in, in meetings and things like that. You know, they know, and they hear us talk on the phone. They're, my son came up to me the other day. He's like, mom, you can't drink alcohol, can you? And I said, no, I can't. And so he knows. And does he ask why? Um, he asks and I say, because mommy is, it, I say that I'm allergic to it. Okay. So it makes me sick. And so when he gets older, we'll, we'll tell him why. So what, what age do you think is appropriate that they can actually understand? Um, as soon as they start putting two and two together of like, you know, what alcohol is or, or what it, what it can do or, or, um, Cause Cause he doesn't, yeah, thinking, he doesn't quite understand right now at right. six years old. I'm thinking back junior high would be a very, I think a tough, I mean, you know, kids are starting to go through their change, you know, you're right. And so on and so forth. And that's, that to me would be a really big time to watch your kids and see mm-hmm. what's going on. And I think at that age, they also would be able to understand yeah. Not that I mean, they're going to listen. Yeah, exactly. I would even say start younger, you know, start younger than those, those, um, maybe like 10, nine, 10 and start okay. just having conversations with them. Like the other day, you know, my son, he was like, he heard us talking and he said, daddy, daddy was in prison. And we said, yeah, he made some, some bad decisions that hurt other people and that hurt himself. Mm -hmm. And, and those were the consequences of those decisions. So we, we do it in little amounts, but being as open as possible, especially if there is history of addiction in any sort of family genes or anything like that, I think it's never too early to start talking about it. Right. And so like your kids, they have it from both mom and dad. They do. Yeah. So that would be scary to me. Well, it is scary to me because I I have it myself, you know, so I'm overprotective with my kids. But to let other parents know, you know, there is I, I started watching at a very early age. And checking now, you know, things are different now than they were like when you were growing up. But, you know, there's, there's all this social media that these kids can be on. And it's so easy for them to find the things to get involved with the wrong people. And I, I think parents have to not be afraid to step in and Mm -hmm. say, you know what, those, those kids you're hanging out with are just not good for you and and your child may be pissed off at you but that's you know that's part of being a parent we're, yeah. we're not there to be their best friends we're there to help hopefully raise them 
in a good way, in a positive way, in a healthy way. Right. Um, and once they become adults, you can be a parent and a friend. But as growing up, we really do need to keep in that parent role. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean you don't play with them and all that kind of stuff. But you really got to continually be aware. And that's not just from parents of addiction. That's all parents. Because it doesn't have to be hereditary. You know, right. it can just start. It can start by them just hanging out with the wrong people and getting involved with them. And there it goes, just like what happened with you. So, yeah. And it's almost like a a switch in the brain. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. okay, I put this substance into my body and a switch turns on where it's like, this is it. This is feels good, you know? So, so definitely, like you said, being present and being in your children's business (laughs) is a good thing. It is. And they'll thank you later. Maybe not yeah. at the time. They'll probably be mad at you all the time. That's okay. That's okay. Right. Yeah. So um, I do want to give, I've got a drug and alcohol addiction hotline that anybody can call at any time from anywhere. Um, I'll go ahead and put it in our link too, but I just want to say out loud the number it's 866-235-4572. Now, this is actually from the Recovery Village, but you can contact them from anywhere in the United States and they will help you. There will be somebody to talk to 24-7 and then whatever area you're in. Now, this is the United States, but any area that you're in in the United States, they will find a place for you. that's um, great thank you so much yeah um listen i really appreciate your story and i i hope that people will really get something out of this and see that there is light at the end of the tunnel yeah there really Um, is and it's not easy it's not going to be easy but it's worth it yeah do you agree i do i do life is I couldn't imagine, you know, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, what my life would be like today. It is beautiful. And I'm so, you know, I, I have a, a, I do, I work a program of recovery and I have a higher power in my life. And so, um, I'm not making decisions on my own anymore. You know, I get to, I get to do it with other women. I have a lot of support. And so help is out there. And your husband too, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. So, um, and you don't have to suffer anymore. So we didn't go into this. Kim and I discussed this before, but her husband was a big part of her final decision that this is going to stop because he didn't give her a choice. He said, I'm done yeah. if you don't get the help. So I'm going to give him credit for some of it. But as you guys yeah. should know, it's still her final decision. She could say F you, you know, mm-hmm. and walk right out of his life. But she chose to get help. So, yeah. and so I think um, the I congratulate in- you. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think the major thing there is he stopped enabling me. 
He wasn't going to give me a place to live. He wasn't going to give me any money. He wasn't going to pay for my cell phone bill. So I think that really has a lot to do with it. Because when an addict or an alcoholic has no more resources, they are left alone. They don't have a place to stay. They don't have a car. They don't have food. They don't have, you know, and at that point, then it's like, oh my gosh, all my resources are done. I need to go get help. And so if you are enabling anybody in any sort of way, maybe check in with yourself and be like, am I enabling this behavior? You know, am I giving money for a cell phone that, or am I giving them a place to live when they're in active addiction? So that really, really helps too. I just want to add to that. So if you're, if you're a parent or a friend or, you know, or a spouse and you don't know what to do you've tried this it's not working whatever it's hard on you too so I encourage you to get help yourself that you can go to um, AA yourself and they'll give you a program um, to go through as and and also just any any type of life coach or a counselor that can help you through because it's really hard to sit back and watch to even making that tough love decision um, and having to live with that, that you've disconnected yourself from a loved one because, yeah. because you want to help them, but that doesn't make it easier just knowing that, you know, Oh, I got to do this. So, you know, don't go through that alone either. You need mm-hmm. to find somebody that can support you with that and help you not give in. So I just wanted to put that out there too. That's awesome. Perfect. Okay. Well, listen, I so much appreciate you being on here. Is there anything else that you want to add to help anybody? Um, well, thank you for letting me do this and share a message of hope and um, don't give up. You know, if you slip and you fall and you try to get clean or sober and you you know, relapse, that might be a part of your story, but you are always wanted and you're needed. So there's lots of people who will help. Just got to reach out and reach up our hand and say, I need help. So, yeah. Thank you so much. I appreciate you, Christy. Okay. Thank you so much. And you have a wonderful day and push this out there and let people know. So when, um, when we get done and I, push it out there I will give you notice and you can share it share it and share it and ask people to share oh will do thanks again you're welcome have a great day all right bye